Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're at that wonderful couple of parshiot, Tazria, Metzora, that every year, every rabbi tries to figure out how this year do I make Tazria meaningful for us as a community. Rabbi, I have to say right off the top, when I was 13 years old, I had my bat mitzvah. This was my court. Wow. And you stayed part of the Jewish people anyway. Anyway, but that's because nobody would talk to me about it. No one talked to you about your bat mitzvah portion. That was this. Very little. So what did they tell you about this? Not much. Not much. (laughs) All right. Well, we uh, are going to unpack it. We are in the uh, third year of the triennial cycle, which puts us at chapter 13, verse 38, or 29, is it 29? Sorry, uh, verse 29, 1329. We are dealing here with the condition called tsara'at, that is the term for this affection of the skin. It can also be on houses, um, and it is dealt with differently if it's on a house. So automatically we know this is not um, how we would think of things in our contemporary time in Western civilization, right? If it's on a house or on skin, it can't be the same thing. And it can be on a garment. And it can be on, thank you, on cloth. So obviously it's not the same thing, but in the ancient world, right, they can look similar. A rash on the skin uh, or discoloration of the skin can look similar to what you would see with mildew or, you know, other kinds of things that we know affect um, surfaces and, uh, and cloth. In the ancient world, of course, they don't know what causes these things? There's, why does it happen to some people and not to other people? How does it happen and then go away? What brings it on? What makes it, what makes it disappear? Some things appear, if you think about getting a fever, right? it appears, and then, God willing, it goes away. Um, why? How? I mean, even now we don't know some of it. Right? We're not sure about how some of this stuff works even now, why people go into remission and other people don't. Like, why does that work for one person and it doesn't work for another person? We still don't know all the answers to that. We know a lot more about causation now. They knew nothing of that in the ancient world. So in the ancient world, something just appears out of nowhere. It, it has to be... It has to be alarming, right? It's still alarming to me when I find something on my child's body, right? Like, it's like, what is that? <laughs> right? Like, and why is it there? And it wasn't there yesterday. <laughs> and it's spreading. Like, what? Right? We, it's scary. We don't know what it is. We don't know what happened. We don't know what caused it. What do I do? I don't know. Um, and so that's a lot of what happens in the ancient world. But if you, if you put on top of that the fact that they attributed so much to forces beyond our ultimate control. It's, it's in some ways more comforting, in some ways more terrifying. Right? That it all comes from some other realm is if you're living a life of righteousness and justice and feel like that force is a benevolent, just force, that might be comforting. It's not going to happen to me because we're living rightly. Um, but it can be just as terrifying when something does happen. It's like, why? And I've been at many a hospital bed, I have to tell you, um, particularly with parents. And the question is why? And these are people who don't necessarily, quote-unquote, believe, but still the question is, they look up and say, why? Why my child? So it's still an instinct, right, to, to, to try to figure out, like, why me? Why us? All right, so all of that is here. All of that is in this text. The uh, priests are the ones who are uh, to diagnose the condition as sara'at. There were medical personnel. There were medical people, even in the ancient world. They had a great knowledge of, body of knowledge of um, herbs and 
um, conditions, and it's not that they didn't know that. Sarat seems to be something else. We translate it as leprosy, even though we know that it's not. Uh, leprosy is Hansen's disease, and this is not Hansen's disease. Many translations have chosen to leave the translation as leprosy in order to convey some of the stigma, some of the power, some of the fright of leprosy that still exists kind of residually within our culture. We don't know it as well, but generations before us certainly did. There were leper colonies. You know, you got sent away. It was you don't want to be anywhere near the rest of society. Some of those elements of tsara'at are, they resonate. I mean, they're the same, right? They're parallel with this this idea of um, things uh, like uh, leprosy. Okay. Let's, let's read a little bit. 1329. If a man has an affection on the head or in the beard, the priest shall... I'm re- oh, excuse me, no, you're right, you're right. It does say a man or a woman. I apologize. I was putting it in context. Y'all are ruthless, just ruthless. It does say a man or a woman. All right, go ahead. I misread. If a man, if a woman or a man... I just think women are perfect, so they never ah, have Ah, good to know, good to know. Right, that's true. If a man or a woman has an affection on the head or in the beard, the priest shall examine the affection. I interrupt for one moment? I read that, and I read affection, then I saw the head and the beard, and I went back and I said affliction. I must have misread it. It does say affection, something that affects them. Yes, I understand that, but it's this different use from what I understand. Whatever it is, the priest shall examine it. (laughs) If it appears to go deeper than the skin and there's a thin yellow hair in it, the priest shall pronounce him impure. It is a skull, a scaly eruption in the hair or beard. But if the priest find that the skull affection does not appear to go deeper than the skin yet there is no black hair in it, the priest shall isolate the person with the skull affection for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall examine the affection. If the skull has not spread and no yellow hair has appeared in it, and the skull does not appear to go deeper than the skin, the person with the skull shall shave himself, but without shaving the skull. The priest shall isolate him for another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall examine the skull. If the skull has not spread on the skin and does not appear to go deeper than the skin, the priest shall pronounce him pure. He shall wash his clothes and he shall be pure. If, however, the skull should spread on the skin after he has been pronounced pure, the priest shall examine him. If the skull has spread on the skin, the priest need not look for yellow hair, he is impure. But if the skull has remained unchanged in color and black hair has grown in it, the skull is healed, he is pure. The priest shall pronounce him pure. All right. <laughs> First, a, que- a question about the Hebrew. It does, at, it does at the beginning say man or woman, but all the pronouns here are male. Right, because that is the, that is the, the pref- preferred pronoun when one is being androgynous. Because if, I mean, it's the default, right, like any romance language, you know, that has a male-female component, if you don't have neuter, like German, if you don't have neuter, then you have to pick male or female, so it's always male for the general, Um, all men are created equal, so it's, um, Mm -hmm. it's the the general male, because when you use female, it's specific. Um, All right, so all the way around the room... We had all these kinds of reactions. Talk to me about those reactions. And I looked this up, and basically it's Andrew. Andrew. All right, so... It seems like there would be a lot of impure people. A lot of skin eruptions, a lot of stuff going on. It seems very specific to determine if it's tsara'at. So there are eruptions that make you impure, 
But the but it, if it's tsara'at, it seems very very specific. Right, something they've seen a lot of, or they know because there's got to be this thing coming out. It's something that they've been dealing with often. <laughs> or enough. Often enough to know it. Right. All right. So we all had this like ee, right a reaction around the table, right? Because this is for a lot of people anything that's kind of unusual that has to do with the body. Right? Fluids or conditions or whatever, people get really hinky about it. Really hinky, right? It gives them the heebie jeebies to even look at it. So, what I'm getting at is it's a normal, natural reaction to go, ah, right? We, we have this setting that says to us, ew, stay away. I don't want to see it. I can't handle it. I can't go there. I don't want to touch it for sure, right? The priest has to. The priest has to go. The priest has to sit with the person and examine them very closely. This is not a career they chose. So you could have a very squeamish priest. Right? They get born into this. They don't volunteer for this. They don't they don't, you know, go to Harvard Medical School for this. You know, and expect to live, you know, a certain kind of, uh, they, they get born into this. So what if you have a very squeamish priest who's called in to diagnose tsarat? And let's say it's a pretty aggressive case of tsarat. It could be seriously gross, both for the person experiencing it, but also for the priest. And I think what it's important for us to remember is Torah doesn't give this to some practitioner. Torah says it's Dafka the priest who sits with this person looks very carefully at what's happening and makes a diagnosis. And it's then the priest who's going to go back to check, who's going to go back to their place and check what's happening with it. Is it spreading? Is it not? Is it time to come back? Is it not? Um, I think that is something we overlook about the role of the priest, right? Isn't it that the role is... Partially a spiritual examination, not just a medical examination, hence the priest was given this job? Truly, I don't think so. Priests do not deal in the realm of spiritual diagnoses. They are all about, here's what it is, here's what you do, here's what you bring me, your animal, here's what I do. They are the technicians. They are the ones who, who take care of the things that have to happen in order for the instructions to be carried out just so. And so, so we've talked a lot about nuclear containment, right? They are the ones in charge of the nuclear plant. And if something isn't right about the instructions and preparedness, people die, right? And the priests died. If, the, if things weren't right, they died. That's not a spiritual thing. Right? If they don't, if they do something wrong in the tabernacle, they die. If an Israelite encroaches, the priest dies if they don't the Levites die if they don't stop it by killing the Israelite. This is not spiritual. Because there's no sense of medical yet. There is no separation between medical and spiritual, spiritual and ethical, political and religious. There, there are not distinctions like that. The priest is not examining the person's thoughts. What's in their heart? The, but, the, what, but what I think is that when a person sees the priest come to their home to deal with whatever this horrible thing is, or not horrible, just this thing is that's happening to them, I have to believe that sends a certain message about people's value, about everybody being important. Is there also a, a public health kind of part to it where the priest is saying, I'm containing this person because <coughs> if, this, if this is leprosy or whatever that word is, then it can also easily spread to others. And then the responsibility not only for the health of this one person, but the whole health of the community to be honest. Okay, so we're se- we're, we would separate public health from other things. They don't. Tum'ah, the condition of being ritually impure, is contagious. 
So always tum'ah has to be treated as a contagion, as an agent of contagion. So everything has to be done to isolate what is tameh from what is tahor because they are mutually exclusive. So we've talked about kedusha, right, holiness. So there, these are other operant uh, words that are really important to understand Israelite cult religion. So, so we have uh, tahor. The root is right, tet hey resh, which means pure. The opposite, tameh, is impure. You often see defiled. <laughs> I don't know. Don't like it. So, tahor and tameh. There, there is a large body of interpretive tradition that goes where Rick went. The rabbis want to go there. The rabbis want to go to, this is a spiritual issue. That is not the case in biblical Israel. We're going to go where, where the rabbis go. But right now, we're in the Bible and we're in the biblical period. Tameh and Tahor, even within the biblical, or especially within the biblical system, there's many interpretations that suggest purity is connected to life. Impurity is connected to death. Everything that is life-giving and life-affirming is associated with Tahorah, which is associated with the divine, being in harmony with it. Impurity is proximity or um, t- tinged by death. And that is not a part of what is to approach the divine. So even the priest who is commanded to bury a dead relative is uh, rendered unfit for service for a period of time. That's how we know that being tame is not bad. Because the priest himself is commanded to become Tameh in order to do the mitzvah of carefully and respectfully burying their own dead. When we think of this, we generally, I mean, I generally think of something on your arm or something on your face, but of course, it, or in the beard, it can be anywhere in the body, and you have a situation where it's a man or a woman. And the priest's examination of the woman, it could be in a, in a very intimate place or in a place that normally... People don't see. Thing. The second piece that occurred to me is one of the things this is saying is don't jump to a conclusion. Just because you see something, don't right. investigate. assume this is too it's serious. Sarah. And there's, there's a verse we're going to look at that, that the rabbis take like this whole wonderful other level. Richard? Um, is there... Uh, with all these, all the things that the priest is supposed to be doing in interacting with people who may or may not have sarafat. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Is this kind of um, a backdoor way of ensuring that there is some minimal level of compassion towards these people who might otherwise be shunned by everybody else in the community? Uh, yeah, I think it's more. This is a way of guaranteeing that at least one. One other human being is going to be willing to interact with them. I think it's more than minimal, right? I think in who knows what happened before, you know, Israelite tradition on the scene. I don't know. There's a lot of parallels to a lot of Israelite law, so I don't know what it was before. But I can imagine that there were communities in which somebody would be shunned, banished, and not welcomed back. Now, the thing to remember is that this is a condition that goes away. One of the other reasons we know it's not Hansen's disease, it, you know, it, it, it's, it could be gone in seven days. Um, so presumably, maybe once they're cured, they can come back. Um, but I do think it is a serious protection for people um, that it is the priest who diagnoses and that there is a full regimen of, of behavior given and that ultimately welcoming them back into the camp with a ritual. So I think it is, it is, yes, I think it is a huge statement about Israelite um, treatment of things that even with this scary awfulness that was seen as being brought on, you know, by God in some way, um, people were to be treated with compassion. Absolutely. All right. So this, um, 
<laughs> working on the virtue of patience, truly. Um, so this, this condition renders one tame, and there's a way that one will become tahor again. But the time that one is tame, impure, one doesn't go near the sancta, one doesn't deal with the sancta, and in the case of tsara'at, there's that public health element, thank you, Laura, there's the public health element that says, and you need to be separated, that, that it needs to be contained. All right. So this is the red tent. So this is like the red tent. The difference is that was, of course, the normal tum'ah, the normal state of impurity that comes from menstruation uh, and or childbirth. Uh, and we should be clear that tameh, tum'ah, this, this condition of impurity, is often brought on by things that come out from the body. Right? So eruptions for men, emissions. So se- seminal fluid is, renders one tameh. Um, childbirth, menstruation, right? When things issue from the body, it causes the condition of ritual impurity. So that's why I want us to be clear that it's not about bad, dirty, not good. It's about different, other, right, than that which is kind of the usual regular state of being ready to be in contact with the sancta. All right, let's read just a little bit more. keep bringing this up. So when I was doing this, we talked about the leprosy part of it, but not the rest of the Right, with B'nai Mitzvah children, I do not tend to talk about night emissions or (laughs) (laughs) menstruation. If I ask questions, and later when I came and read it, I was surprised to see what else was there. (laughs) Right, that there was a lot else in there, Diane. I want to find out if the word impure is used in other connotations. No. No. Contact with a dead animal renders one tame. But it's about the death part. Right? When when one is in contact with death, right, one is rendered tame. So then wouldn't men be impure all the time? Wouldn't men be impure all the time? <laughs> well, a lot of men would probably be impure a lot of the time, which is how we know it's not a big deal. Right? So we are, the priests don't then have to go and check that? No, that's not tzara'at. It's only tzara'at that the priest has to do a diagnosis. If someone has a, a dream in the middle of the night and wakes up and realizes, now I'm impure, they deal with it. They wash their clothes, they do the rituals that are prescribed for them to do but, so that they can re-enter the community. Um, and we are commanded to have sexual intercourse. That renders one impure. Right, so all of these things that one is commanded to do and that are good things render one impure. Right. Go on. Okay. If a man or woman has the skin of the body streaked with white discolorations and the priest sees that the discolorations on the skin of the body are of a dull white, it is a tetter broken out of the skin. He is pure. If a man loses the hair of his head and becomes bald, he is pure. If he loses the hair on the front part of his head and becomes bald at the forehead, he is pure. But if a white affection streaked with red appears on the bald part in the front or at the back of the head, it is a scaly eruption that is spreading over the bald part in the front or at the back of the head. The priest shall examine him. If the swollen affection on the bald part in the front or at the back of the head is white streaked with red, then the leprosy of the body's than the leprosy of body skin in appearance. The man is leprous, he is impure. The priest shall pronounce him impure, he has the affection on his head. Go on. As for the person with a leprous affection, his clothes shall be rent, his head shall be left bare, and he shall cover over his upper lip, and he shall call out, impure, impure. He shall be impure as long as the disease is on him. Being impure, he shall dwell apart, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. All right, so you can see that there is a there is a serious charge around this, right? It is a it is a very charged situation to find out that it is indeed sarat. So you know these days the only thing I can um, render it close to is you have a biopsy, 
right? Wait, wait, wait. The, the, you have a biopsy. The lump is still there. Nothing changes with the lump. What you're waiting to hear is, is it cancer? Right? And so that's what this is. You, you can have the condition, and it looks just like this person who has the condition, but there's a, there's a slight difference. And when that is announced, right, it's... You've got it or you don't. You've got it or you don't. They're the same looking thing. The lump is the same, whether, mm-hmm. right, in terms of how you experience it, what, ap- what actually it is, what it feels like. But, but it, there's a huge difference once one knows there's a slight difference about that lump that, that renders us terrified. That is what this is. So it is probably something like psoriasis. So. What are the consequences of being impure? It is a temporary state. What if you always have a skin affliction? You don't always, it seems, according to Torah, that you don't always have tzarat. In other words, someone can have a discoloration of the skin that is not tzarat. It, it seems that tzarat is something that heals. So that if you have psoriasis in it or whatever, the impetigo or whatever that never goes away, that's not sarat. Not. No. It seems that it would be even here. How is it not? Well, you've got all this other kind of stuff going on like that doesn't necessarily happen with those conditions. Um, so it... You know, it, says it can be on away. the clothes and it can be on the walls of the house. It's not just the skin condition. That's how we know it's not leprosy. Or it could be, but it's and, No, it doesn't have to be, but it, it lets you know it's not only a skin <clears throat> condition. Right, but, but Roseanne's saying if, if someone has a condition yeah. that's diagnosed as Sarah, could it be permanent? And it seems the answer is no. Like on verse 37, if it has remained unchanged in color and black hair has grown on it, it's healed, he's pure. So it's still, there's still... There's still something happening, but it's, not, but it's no longer it's active tzarat. Right. Um, and but so... The consequences are that you aren't allowed to be in the sanctuary. Correct. It's more than that. You have to go outside the camera. Well, it depends. It depends. It depends. It depends. It depends. So if it's tzarat and it's been in a certain stage, then you have to, you are outside the camp. But that's not true if you have a night emission. You're not outside the camp for seven days, right? You know, there, there are different levels of tum'ah. And when you say you can't come into the sanctuary, Israelites could never go into the sanctuary, right? So, right, they, the, only the priests and Levites could do that. So, so what does it mean to be removed from relationship to the sancta? It means you can't bring a sacrifice, you can't eat sacrificial meat. You can't, you know, there's things you can't do that people in a state of tahara, of purity, can do. It doesn't, in this case, there is, I think, a level of stigma attached to it that isn't necessarily present in other levels of tum'ah. Let's say contact with the dead. Even though that's the highest level of tum'ah you can get is contact with a, contact with a corpse, it, is, it isn't anything to be shameful you know, about, even though it's a very serious high level of tumma. Are there any preventative um, passages about bathing? And- no. no. This is not understood to be a condition that one can control. So this goes to Rick's point that we're going to get to in a minute, that um, it, it isn't something that one can prevent unless one wants to change one's behavior and it's not about physical issues. Right, it's about it's understood that this is this is this comes from somewhere else, uh, and so is caused by things in relationship to that force that brings it on. So, meaning moral, ethical, right kinds of of behaviors. Um, so, in that sense, someone could change their behavior. Um, there are always given then um, rituals for how to bring people back into the fold. I want us to look at some other. Um, some other interpretations of these concepts um, and some wonderful stuff. Yes. Is who initiates the correction of the impure? In other words, does the priest always do it or does the sufferer 
explain explain your question. That who asks, who is the first to notice, and who seeks the corrective action? Okay, so there isn't corrective action. There's a diagnosis. So someone notices something. I don't know who initiates. It doesn't tell us. Well, the reason for the question is if if I were to notice this impurity in me, and I know there's a ritual to diagnose it and ultimately get rid of it, hopefully. No. So So there's a no. Hang on. Let me. Let's stop right there. I notice something. There is nothing, there's nothing to do but call the priest to diagnose it. There's no way to get rid of it. No, but there is an option not to call the priest. Correct. So that's the question. Do the people who call, call the priest know about the potential ritual? There's no ritual to get rid of it. That's what I'm trying to say. There, no, no. The no, the priest diagnoses, oh, okay. and then the person is isolated. Then they check: is the affection gone? If it's not, the person stays outside the case. Nothing happened. The priest doesn't do anything. Once the person is clear, then there's a ritual to bring them back to the camp. The ritual is not to cure tsaraat. That's important. That's an important distinction. There's a con- I think there's no treatment. There's a, con- uh, there's a consequence. And since there is a consequence of being put outside the encampment, maybe someone would not... So that's different. If, if somebody just doesn't want to deal with the fact that they're impure, it might be tzarat, of course they don't call the priest. Now they know they are risking everyone else's around them ritual impurity. And if, my, if I render my wife ritually impure and she does something that she's not supposed to while she's impure, it's terrible. Terrible. So now it's up to people's, I guess, conscience, you know, t- to determine whether or not they want to go there and risk it. But there's, but there's, n- there's no incentive to call the priest so that I can be cured. Right. If nobody else notices it, right, because right. the priest can't cure it. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So. We're going to look at one of the ways that that, um, that this has been dealt with, and then we're going to go back to the rabbis. But I want to start later than the rabbis in something called Musar. Musar is a, a traditional approach to self improvement that looks to characteristics, spiritual characteristics of a person, of all of us, because we all share them, and, and to focus on one aspect at a time, to work on that aspect, let's say for a week. And one generally has someone that one reports to, a rabbi, a spiritual partner, that one does Musar practice with, and one reflects on one's week and how one did in this aspect, whatever the aspect is. One of the aspects that Musar deals with is tahara, purity. Now, we're not dealing with tzara'at. We're not dealing with the cult. We're not dealing with right the, the temple, the tabernacle. So obviously the meaning has changed. Tahara and tum'ah become something else that pure and impure become something else. And one of the areas that our tradition has focused on is the realm of thought. So purity of thought, purity of intention, and impurity of thought, and impurity of intention. What I love about it is as this has developed, the lack of stigma has remained. Does that make sense? You're supposed to bury a dead person. It renders you impure. So there's nothing bad about that. But one doesn't want to cultivate a lot of death in life, right? In terms of it isn't the state one wants to be in. One wants to be usually in a regular state where one can easily right, approach the sancta and be in relationship that way with the divine and the community. So it's, it's other, and we don't usually want to be in other. We, we want to be regular. So it is... I believe, someone could argue with me, but I believe it's 
maintained that lack of, of um, judgment while we still want to decrease the impure and increase the pure. We have impure thoughts. Okay. We don't need to get all tangled up in that. Fine. That's fine. How do we cultivate, right, more purity of intention, more purity of thought, more generous thought? Um, so let, let's look, look at page three. This is from the uh, Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Rabbi Pamela Wax and... Um, I'm forgetting the other rabbi's name at the moment. I'll remember. Uh, bring us these, these texts around this. So go down to the bottom, uh, and you see that in Parshat Tazria, the ritual impurity stem, Tame, right? Tet, Mem, Aleph, appears 26 times, and the root for purity appears 25 times. So it's like a busy Parsha with, right, with this stuff. All right, go down to the next paragraph. What might Tahara and Tuma have to do with optimism and pessimism, you ask? Obviously, they've mentioned this somewhere else. Tuma is associated with death and Tahara with life. In threatening life, Tuma is understood to impugn the realm of the holiness of God. It was not for naught that the anthropologist Mary Douglas named her groundbreaking study of Leviticus Purity and Danger, an analysis of concepts of pollution and taboo. And yet we actually need Tum'ah. We cannot dispense with it as it is truly part and parcel of the holy whole and the sacred brew. Right? So as writer and Auschwitz survivor Primo Levi wrote in the periodic table, in order for the wheel of life to turn, for life to be lived, impurities are needed. And the impurities of impurities in the soil too, as is known, if it is to be fertile. Dissension, diversity, the grain of salt and mustard are needed. Fascism does not want them, forbids them. It wants everybody to be the same. Immaculate virtue does not exist either. Or if it exists, it is detestable. What is he saying? We need the mess. We need... We need to be tolerant of the mess, being part of the whole mess. We need the mess... Meaning like... The example of hate speech, right? Hate speech is protected. You can't vandalize. I said, great. I wrote a letter in one of the television articles about this a couple weeks ago. Vandalism and graffiti you can't do, but you can say horrible things, and we and that's protected because of this. You have to have that kind of impu- You have to allow for it. Otherwise, to try to control it and make it not there makes it is a, is a sort of a fascism it doesn't allow for the reality and there's a lot of you know civics reasons why you want that to be um which i don't think is part of this necessarily but the spiritual reason for it is um probably connected which is it's all it's all, it exists so to deny that it's not out there denies sort of the whole of the world. so a you're denying what's real what's the danger what is he saying the danger is of ignoring it Okay, it's better to acknowledge it. It's part of reality. It's part of life. It's better. He's saying something else, something more, right? That right. not only is it part of reality, but it's dangerous to deny it. You need to own it. Why? Because if you own it, then you won't project in the other place. Ah. If we own it, we don't need to put it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And the minute we put it somewhere else, what happens? We want to destroy it out there because it's not here. It's out there, right? Which is what fascism does. It's not going to be here. For sure it's not here, but it's right over there. But also, I think there's a danger in defining what is pure and what is impure so that if suddenly I define what is good speech, what are good actions, what is right, and everything else is shut down as wrong, 
there's a danger that I'm taking that power of really sort of setting the rules for everybody else. Right, but we have to be careful. We're not suggesting identifying something as tum'ah means we destroy it. No, I'm not saying destroy. I'm, I'm saying that they're, they're talking about, look, you know, it says in order for the wheel to turn for life to be lived. Well, in order for life to be lived, you need to understand that, there, that death follows life. Mm-hmm. Right? And that there's, and that bad things happen to good people, and that we all have stuff. Um, and that also in order to learn and grow as a person, you need to be exposed to ideas that you may not be comfortable with and necessarily agree with. And, um, you know, if all you did was, you know, had, you know, you shut out death, you shut out sickness, you shut out all the things that you don't want to agree with, and you're living a life that is, um, you know, totally protected, I think that there's a danger and a problem with that. Right. All right, so, so let's look at Nancy Weiner and Joe Hirschman writing about this paragraph from Maps and Meaning, Levitical Models for Contemporary Care. Primo Levi's words acknowledge the persistent reality of impurities within the fabric of life. In Leviticus, powerful transformations involving the passage of time and the use of ritual allow for the integration of illness, death, and war into the lives of individuals and the community. Primo Levi similarly proposes that impurities are an inevitable element of growth, change, and the maintenance of the diversity that naturally exists in the world. Without this, the world is a place of regression, stagnation, and artificially imposed uniformity. And when we impose artificial uniformity, everything dies. It just does. Right? There has to be diversity and there has to be all the kind of craziness that happens with that and the death, the destruction, the loss, the change, right, that that happens with that or everything stagnates. You know, there's no question that Primo Levi's observation is right, but he also comes from Auschwitz Mm -hmm. and the parallel to the Aryan race is just clear here. Well, sure, he's, he's seen what happens. Firsthand. Yeah, right. He's seen what happens. He was there. 100%. He's an expert on what happens when diversity is completely stifled and gone, right? And an artificial sameness is. Yeah, sure, of course. I think it's also interesting in very current times, there's been very immature and offensive speech made by one of our presidential candidates. And there was the instance on the, the um, on the college campuses where there was a chalk of Trump and people were you know riding Trump and so many people became offended and there was this backlash against even riding Trump and what happened was that on colleges throughout the country now they're chalking Trump all over the place not because people are in favor of Trump or what he stands for but because they stand for freedom of speech and not shutting down the political correctness. Mm-hmm. Well, and there could be equally. Valid stances on the other side saying, not in our community. We won't have speech like that in our community. So that that's as reconstructionists we, you know, deal a lot in that that what does the community think? What does the community decide are appropriate limits and guidelines? But but acknowledging what the community values are mm-hmm. Shutting down other voices because when you shut them down, they fester, they grow, they don't go away. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important not to shut things down. And there is speech that is not protected under our Constitution because it's understood to be threatening and leads to action that can be not about speech, right? There can be incitement to yes. violence, that's incitement that's to acts that are not just about opinion but about acts. And yes. I mean, I think that's the what I'm saying about. Where, where does one say, all right, now it's crossing over into damaging right. um, speech that could lead to things that we're, we're not comfortable having that. Right. There is I the mean, I'm just saying, and I'm not saying I know where that line is. I'm just saying that's part of the responsibility of, of a community is to decide what is that line. You can't run into a crowded theater and yell fire. That's not protected speech, right? So wh- where... Right, and, and, and where are particular government has decided the line is is not necessarily where we might 
personally or in a spiritual community want the line to be. The line for incitement is pretty far. It deals with action. But, you know, I, I was always taught you have to allow for these dissenting, horrible views to be spoken if they're not leading to that incitement point. Because otherwise, how do we know what we're facing? Mm-hmm. No, 100%. <laughs> so. All right, go to this page. This is from Larry Kushner's wonderful book, The Book of Words, um, where he takes traditional Hebrew words and retranslates them. So, tahara does not mean water. He's translating tahara as water, purity, right? So, that's what he does throughout the book. He takes one concept that we're used to and translates it in a way that's a whole new way of thinking about it. So that's what he does with Tahara. He, he translated purity as water. How does he, what's the connection? I mean, is, is there uh, a linguistic look. connection within the letters? No. So he's not pretending that, that, that someone's translated it wrong before. He's, he's giving us a new lexicon. Like, what if we move past the literal meaning? What if we're translating it, really translating it the next step? Death is not bad. It is an inescapable part of life. Nevertheless, we are surprised by our aversion to physical contact with it. For all our medical sophistication, death seems to defile us. And only water, which carries life, or God, who is the source of life, seem able to purify us. Every death represents a tear in the curtain, just as any life making, uh, sorry, just as any life making fluid, which does not make life such as seminal emissions or menses, must be treated with great caution. The process of birth is itself a transition from the universe not yet alive to the universe of life. A woman who has given birth, therefore, must be protected from her close encounter with the other side. Our problem is not that we've outgrown these archaic borders between defilement and purity, but that we have forgotten where they are. And when a person has no way of knowing whether he or she is in the universe of life and purity or the universe of death and defilement, that person spends a lot of time in unaware contamination, feeling out of sorts. Water is not only the sea from whence we have come. It is also the medium through which we can return to purity and life. And if you look at his his comments on... Uh, Turn your page over and go to page 90, the top left corner of your page. He writes in another collection uh, about this as well. We seem to have lost the ability to discern the difference between being in a state of ritual purity and being in one of ritual defilement. Indeed, we have even forgotten that defilement comes from contact with death. But the categories are still there. All we have to show for our sophisticated amnesia is a nagging sense of discomfort and contamination. The Bible is, of course, keenly aware of these modes of being and here prescribes a ritual for returning to a state of purity from the inevitable contamination to which we are all condemned. It grows on the walls of our bedrooms like mold and in the interiors of our psyches, an alien growth. It's immune to cleansers and medicines because it is not evil, dirt, or illness but it's still there. Isn't, what, isn't that what organized religion is supposed to do? With water and blood and birds, hyssop and cedarwood and sacrifice or whatever to make our houses fit again for habitation. A powerful piece. Um, what is the mold growing on the walls of our bedrooms? That was quick. Paula had a quick answer. It is guilt. It reminds me of the the out of sorts feelings that you have when you you don't know that you're in that in that contaminated state, whether it's from like a metaphoric death of a relationship, or you know when you're on the outs with a friend and there's that feeling of wrongness. And we don't know what to do with it. And we don't know what to do about it. And we've lost the ability to categorize clearly. 
so that we can then say, okay, so here's what has to happen. This is what's going on. This is what has to happen. Um, and then this is what I have to do. And then I can come back into the life of... To know that there is that. I will be back. There is a way for me to come back out of this feeling. Right, and that I can name it and call it what it is and then, right, um, and then come back. All right. Um, I love this teaching by, um, by Larry Kushner. Uh, the rabbis, um, so I told you, I'm going to go to Musar and go back to the rabbis. So the rabbis, they love, as you know, they love to play with this stuff. <laughs> this is their sandbox. And Tazria is the disease. The person who has it is the mitzorah. Tazria is the condition. The person itself is mitzorah. So the rabbis look at that. And they say, don't read leper, God forbid, look carefully. Oh, wait, sorry. If you take the mutzah, right? Now, remember, there are no vowels in the Torah. So just take the mutzah and add certain vowels and you get motzi. Motzi brings forth. Motzi. Ra. What's ra? Bad. bad. Someone who brings forth bad, but the rabbis are very specific. What is it that they bring bad? Words. Shame. What's shame? Name. 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 Someone who brings a bad name. Someone who gossips. Someone who talks about other people and brings on them a bad name. That's the mitzorah. That's what Torah is really talking about. This is not some scaly affliction that comes from nowhere. This is a condition of impurity that comes from gossip. That comes from slander. That comes from what we say the minute someone leaves the room. This is what comes from talking about other people. Spreading rumors. And we think it ends in high school. But it doesn't. And the rabbis say, look to how much of your conversation is about other people. 89, 93%? How, how often do we say something that's not about other people? What I love about what we do in here is I find our conversation, right, is in a much different place than we tend to be. I think it's one of the reasons we all show up. It's one of the reasons we need synagogues. And other houses of learning and other houses of practice that help us like really become aware and what let's talk about some other stuff that's not you know like um, and the rabbis understand this to be seriously dangerous. Very, very, very dangerous. They believe this is the core of so much hatred and enmity and misunderstanding and miscommunication and mistrust and bad, bad behavior that we all engage in all the time. So much so that the rabbis, we got in our first uh, pasuk, our first sentence that we read, that sarat is a nega. What's a nega? Nun gimel ayin. So it's a blemish. It's a something, right? Something yucky. Right? No. Nega is just the eruption. The blemish, the thing on the wall. Just what we see that's okay, that's not right. That's that's icky. Right? Nega, that's what it is. Okay. Why? Because ayin, right? The eye, the way of seeing things, the way of looking at things, the ayin, that's the name of the letter, but what's ayin? What's the name of the letter? Ayin. I. Your, your sight, the way you look at things is put in the wrong place. It's at the end. It's not where it belongs. It needs to be in the beginning. You need to put your eye back to the way it's supposed to be, looking to God, looking to holiness, looking to purity with intention. And if you do that, if you move this to the front, what do you get? Oneg. What's oneg? Joy. Pleasure. It is not cookies. <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying oh, there's not going to be cookies in Oneg. Don't worry. 
so not worried. Only, it's not it's only, not, co- only, only cookies. Only cookies. So when we can... When we can move, I aim to where it belongs, to be at the beginning, to let how we want to see things, to let our vision lead us and guide us in everything that we do and everything that we say uh, and how we want to be in the world, then it becomes oneg, it becomes joy and pleasure, not just for us, but of course for the divine. So I love this. (laughs) (laughs) And last week, I had the benefit of studying this parshah with a great, great sage, Jonah Stropinski. Mm-hmm. Who was a 13 year old Benin <laughs> Wonderful. And he had a similar take, but he really talked about the gossip and Lashon Hara, mm-hmm. which is spreading of the gossip and how it goes out in the community and causes ripples and can create bad things. But the opposite of Lashon Hara was Lashon Hatov, mm-hmm. which is speaking good and speaking kindness. And that saying good things, and this is exactly what you're saying here, it's a slightly different twist, you know, you spread out and bring good things. And that really made a huge impact on me. I was glad that at least uh, two out of my three children were there, because you're right, teenagers and college kids and adults, all of us, we're so easy to speak gossip and speak poorly, but if you can just, as a habit, speak kindly about people, right. speak kindly about the world. When we can change our perspective. Right, so that really stuck with me. And it's good that it was reinforced this week because after one week, <laughs> um, and this goes back to the the first sentence of our of, of Rabbi Pamela Wax's teaching, which is um, Musar understands. So to bring it fully back around, Musar understands that one of the ways we control and change. I shouldn't say control. One of the ways we change our thought. And if we think of impurity of thought being things like pessimism, cynicism, despair, right, is exactly what Rick's talking about, that we change our perspective and we start noticing, right, this is what mindfulness practice is all about, we start to notice, oh, there it goes, I'm starting, right, she always does that, why does she always do that, it always goes this way, these meetings are always like this, I knew nothing would get done, right, that's all that talk that, that just keeps us in that place of nega and of blemish, of icky, um, and leads us eventually to say things that are raw, that are yucky and bad and hurtful and damaging. And that when we can have, an, when we can notice and work on our cultivation of our own tahara, our own purity of thought and intention and speech, we can truly change and be happier and healthier and and more productive and more hopeful. And, and that we have to believe. We're commanded to believe or we wouldn't be here. Um, we'll, change, we'll change the world around us. I was going to say that right now it's difficult to have that kind of good feeling what's going on in politics right now and the words that are being and the way the energy is spreading around. I think it is so damaging that it, I think it affects us even in our home and our personal life in such a way that that negative outgoing of what's going on in the political Right, so it's very tempting to, or not tempting, it's easy to stay in, well, that's what's happening, and so it affects us. And what our tradition says is it's not that simple, it's not that easy, (coughs) and we don't get off that easily. We have to say, all right, if I don't like what I'm seeing on the TV, turn it off. And then go read a speech by the candidate that you support, who's saying something you believe in. And then go work for that campaign. Right? I I just am doing it myself. Right? I got called by a rabbi. All right, I'll help. Right? Because if I don't help, if I don't do something to contribute to the cause that I believe is the way forward, it's too easy to slide into. It's such a mess. Look at that. It's such a disaster. This is such a circus. Right? That is where it's very easy to go. And and I'm not saying I'm any different. I I feel exactly the same way. That it's so easy to just kind of go, uh. Um, and the tradition says we don't get to stay there. We control how we think about things. We have way more control over what affects us and impacts us than we think. We can turn off CNN 
and we can turn on something else that fills us with your TED talk or you know whatever that fills us with hope and possibility and 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 a way forward and that we have to to own that and we have to own that responsibility so that we start to cultivate that because then we can change right speaking of someone who survived Auschwitz we don't control what happens to us or what comes at us what we control is how we respond and what we do with that and and so we can't control that it's crazy and that we got to this terrible mess of a place okay so what we have to do then is figure out how do i cultivate behaviors and practices that will strengthen tahara purity of thought and intention and speech and and action in my life shabbat shalom you've been listening to rabbi amy bernstein's friday morning torah study from kehillat israel in pacific palisades california for more information go to our website www.ourki.org